Driving School. Hello and welcome to Owen the Town and today's episode is one we've been excited for for a while now. I'm joined by Dave today, no Bataro, no Steve, too early in the morning for too that. Too early, yeah. uh, But the star of the podcast and joining us today all the way from Western Australia, Chris Coyne. Good morning. How are, you? How are you? Good morning, good afternoon, I should say. Yeah, good afternoon, mate. Yeah, beautiful 23 today in Perth, so... I hope you boys are okay. I appreciate you um, with the time difference and that. I do really appreciate you jumping on so early. No, no worries. It's um, it's, a, it's a chilly start to the day in, in England here, I'm not going to lie, but um, probably get some rain. raining. It's not raining not quite, yet. Not quite raining yet. <laughs> not, not yet. yet. <laughs> but it, it will. It will rain, I think. <laughs> Basically, Chris, we wanted to get you on a podcast. We just wanted to take you down memory lane and just talk about your time at Luton. Maybe tell us stories we've, we've never heard before because there's, there's been some that have come out in the past from former players and I'm just like, I need to know more. So that's like the aim of today is just to take you down memory lane. And yeah, mate, it was, um, I've got to, be, got to be honest with you, we, we were chatting about it the other week and uh, it was a special time in my life. You know, I was a young boy, I was 21, 22 um, when I went in there and it was, uh, it was just a great place to be and even going back there in September, I hadn't been back to the UK for about eight years. Not that I didn't miss it, but I just didn't feel the need to do it. And just going back and you're still seeing the same people there, you know. It's just a good place and and such a good club. And they've, they've still got, you know, if you're walking the door and you're seeing people that you saw 10, 15, 20 years ago. And that's the beauty of the club. And they don't forget anyone, which, um, again, was, was really warming for me to walk in the door with my son after such a long time. And, and people are still there to give you a hug and and see you so no it's um it's a special place in my heart and i'm somewhere i'll never forget and my three boys are from from l d anyway so you know that's one of the first results they check for as well um, i love that come sunday morning they got like looting tops and everything and they all kitted out oh yeah they are they, they're liverpool tragics as well so <laughs> the irish boys over the road that kills me because my old man's a, a, a true everton fan so it absolutely pains me to see them wearing those <laughs> shitty red shirts. But fortunately, during my time there, we were, we were fortunate enough to play Liverpool in a couple of epics, weren't we? Yeah, so yeah. Um, I think that didn't help. They'd done the treble in, 205, uh, in 05 or 06 or whatever it was. And that was just their sort of formula of years when they were sort of getting into football. So it is what it is. But, um, you know, they still wear the, the gear. They've still got, you know, stuff up there. And they're um, proud Lutonians at the end of the day. That's what we loved here, though, isn't it? That's yeah, I have to say that uh, when my lad had was given a Manchester United shirt when he was younger, um, it didn't survive. No. I'm just telling you that. It didn't survive, Chris. You can take control of what <laughs> shirts they wear. The Luton ones are always the you, best ones. Well, you can, but the problem I've got now, right, one's six foot four, one's six foot one, and the other one's <laughs> is pushing six foot. So yeah, leave them I alone. Sort of, I'm just like gone down in the pecking order real, real quickly. <laughs> okay, I, I think you should let them wear their Liverpool <laughs> shirts. <then. laughs> I think so for my own well-being, mate. I think I need to. Yeah. Well, you joined Luton in 2001. Joe Kinnear signed you. And when he signed you, he described you as a big and strong and uncompromising centre-half who can pass the ball with both feet. He says he can... Can read the game well and he's young enough to improve when you sign for a new club hearing them comments must be uh quite, quite motivating yeah it was motivating but the, the biggest thing for me the biggest driver was joe and mick as a partnership you know their people skills and yes they sold the club but they sold the dream as well um and the fact that you know, if I can swear on you, they didn't bullshit. Oh, yeah, go for it. You know, they were completely honest and they, the club followed what they were doing. And, um, yeah, they were big words. And, and I, I did enjoy the fact that they had that confidence in me stepping into my first game. And then I was fortunate enough to score an own goal in the 87th minute <laughs> to give us a one-all draw. So I wasn't obviously that good with my left peg. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gone into Wembo's <laughs> top corner. But... Um, you know, it was a good place and you, and you could see what they were trying to build. And um, I think given a bit more backing, I think, you know, we, we were in trouble at the time and there was a lot going on. But I think if we'd stuck with what we were doing, I think the club would have been in a really strong place with the, the vision and um, momentum that Joe and, and Nick had built up. I think the momentum thing is, is the right thing to say. I, I, I remember I actually redu- I was at your debut. At Luton, but um, I just remember the fans were behind Kinnear. I think he, we were just rolling along with him. I think and and having Mick as number two, um, for me was was a was a fantastic thing. Um, what was what was Kinnear like to work with? Really, because I, I just get the feeling that he just 
rolled in and rolled out, if I'm honest. Yeah, he did. Absolutely he did. I mean, we saw the fridge at training probably three or four times in the time that he was there with us. But do you know what? When he spoke, you listened because he knew what he was talking about. He was probably old school in the terms that he was more of a manager than a coach. But he knew how to get the best out of his players and he'd have those conversations and he'd drop little smart-ass one-liners in. And it's only now that you're a bit older and you think, shit, he was asking me a question there that he was challenging me. Um, And the fact that he had Steenie and Mick there that could could run it day-to-day, it actually worked out really well because you're not getting the same voice in your ear every day. You're getting, you know, Brian and and Mick during the week and then when Joe comes in, he was going, no, 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 this is what we're doing. And um, Mick and Joe, uh, Mick and Steeny being such good manager or good coaches in what they were doing, they just reiterate what Joe was going through. So it was a good balance. It was a good, um, it was a good working environment because then you weren't. Sometimes as a player, you block stuff out. So if you've got the same voice in your ear talking shit constantly, you just turn up. You turn off. Yeah. Um, and you want to listen, but you just can't help it. Um, and I think the way that Joe done it, it was a little bit old school, but it was a it was a good outcome, and he was good at what he did. I often wonder when when you're not performing quite well, not just as a team, and you go into that dressing room at half time, and the manager steps up, how much do people listen to that? Or are you just talking to each other? You, you sort of oh, well. I can oh no no no! Listen, I mean we're going back what you know, so we're almost twenty years ago. Yeah. So when the gaffer walked in, you listened, and if you didn't, Mick was stood in the corner leaning against the door frame, ready to. Re- rip your head off so <laughs> you listen but you respected you know you respected people i think that you know i think society's changed a little bit now yeah um but when the manager walked in you were in awe you know when he spoke you listened to every word whether you agreed with him or not it's a bit different um but the best thing about joe you know once he'd had his rant i mean blackpool away we, we were three nil down or four nil down um second game league one and um joe Kinnear took alan nielsen off after about 17 minutes 20 minutes Came in at half time, went ballistic. I think we got it back to, I think we ended up losing 5 3. We were in the dress room, Blackpool away, Tuesday night. We didn't finish with Joe till about 12 o'clock. Wow. Wow. He just tore shreds off everyone. Does that like ruin um, some players' confidence when, when that's happening? It was, yeah. I walked out there, I felt a thousand yards tall after that, mate. It was, <laughs> yeah. And he, he was challenging you. He was just saying it's not acceptable. So if you're going to accept mediocrity, then let's go through the season where he put put the gauntlet down. I think it was the second game or third game of the year, and just put a gauntlet down and said, you know, what if you're going to be successful? Let's let's sort stuff out. So he was ruthless. He was um, I wouldn't say he was vindictive. I think he, he treated everyone fairly, which was the, another good trait. But his neck was on the line as well. You know, he just came out of the Premier League, went down to League Two, so he had to to get results as well. So. Yeah. Good times, but yeah, that was funny. That that two-hour conversation of him just screaming at us and and going for like bananas. It was uh, it was good value. Stuff <laughs> now you look back at and go, wow. Ended up getting back to Luton at five in the morning, which was even better. My God, I wish it was a camera crew there. Oh, a camera crew would that would have been yeah. Oh mate, it was honestly if a camera crew had been there, or you wouldn't have heard anything because it would just been the whole way through because it was just absolute carnage. And with Mick Harford, obviously he's still around the club now and he's he's such a legend. He has everyone's respect. He has all the fans' respect. And as how much respect have you got for someone like Mick Harford and, and what's he like to work with? Because a lot of people wouldn't know. Yeah, oh, listen, still now I'm, I'm turning 42 this year. If I saw Mick, I'd still shake his hand and he's still a god to me. He's just got that standing in the club um, and as a, as a person as well. You know where you stand with Mick. He's completely honest, um, let alone his football brain. You know, the guy's, you know, he's very good. But but Mick is the football person. Um, he's probably in the top 10, 15 in, in UK football. Oh, and wow. I don't say that because I've got a, a soft spot for him. I say that because I've seen the way that other people um, react to Mick. You know, they've got so much respect for the guy. Yeah, he could belt you up if he needed to. But he's, he's very quietly spoken and he's very studious and understands the game well. And everyone that I don't think that anyone that's played for Mick would have a bad word to say about him. And I don't think there's too many in the football fraternity um, that would speak badly about Mick Harford. He's, um, he's a true student of the game and, you know, what he's done for, for Luton in general. I mean, geez, you know, wow. the guy's um, yeah, he's- absolute legend. I think there'll be a statue at the new stadium, I think, of Mick Harford. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't think there's a single fan or person 
that knows that Luton Town would, would say anything different to what you've just said. Fantastic. No. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy. I like him a lot. You say that. Word. He is a good guy. But he, I mean, he's honest when he needs to be. Don't get me wrong. Mick's got that streak. Yeah. That if he's not happy, he'll, he'll let you know in no uncertain terms. But it's always for the right reason. There's no double-edged sword with, with Mick. You know, it's straight down the line. And if he doesn't like something, he'll tell you. Yeah. And I think that's why everyone respects him so much. Is that what you got then when you scored that own goal on your debut? <laughs> No, I got a cuddle actually. <laughs> they pump my tyres up that much, and then I let them down. But I mean, it's one of those things, you know. When the ball bounces off your hip and goes in the top corner, what can you do? Yeah. I, I thought I was doing the right thing, trying to get back into cover, and it, it happens. I mean, I wasn't too happy about it. Got back to the, the hotel. We were in the thistle at the time, and um, I was pretty dejected. You know, you, you feel like you know you've come in only tra- trained two days before the game, and, and felt a bit deflated, but, um, you know, it's one of them that I think that's where my relationship with Russell Perrett started from because he just sort of said, don't worry about it, mate. It, it happens. It's gone. You know, it, it is what it is. Just make sure you don't do it next week. So, yeah. you know, we had a couple of beers and a cuddle and, and something to eat and that was it. Do you ever get players that when you score like an own goal that they, they don't take it the right way? Or is it normally like you score an own goal and everyone's like, you know what, mate, head up, doesn't matter. Yeah, well, it depends because we had a strong dressing room. So if someone had reacted the wrong way, I think they would have got strung up in the in the in the dressing room <laughs> once they'd walked in there. So we had we had a good culture. You know, we looked after each other. We made sure that if you weren't pulling your weight, you were told. Um, and if it was an honest mistake, no one pulled anyone's um, no no one pulled any punches. You know, they'd put your arm around you. Don't don't worry about it. If you were doing the wrong thing, um, you, you certainly got told about it by your teammates, which I think was really healthy. Um, and it, it certainly made for a good dressing room because everyone was on the same page. Everyone was pulling in the same way together. So, no, it was a good dressing room um, and good, honest people that were working hard to get good results. So we didn't have any of that sort of palaver that you see nowadays where people yeah. are throwing their arms up in the air and, and pointing the finger. I think we're a pretty honest unit that looked after each other. Do you think that's what modern day football's lacking now is, is stuff like that from previous years? 100%. 100%. You look at these kids, they're coming out of... All right, so you take Lonies into the equation, right? They're on 30, 40 grand a week, never kick the football in anger, come down to Luton, pull up in their Porsche, and they just expect to get paid and everything's hunky-dory. Where, you know, and I don't, I don't begrudge them the money. It's not the money side of it. They should be grateful for the fact that they're earning a living out of the game. And they, they should be, they're very fortunate that they're getting it. Where the problem is now, there's that much money in, in English football, and these kids are that rich that quick, they don't appreciate it. And they're always quick to point the finger, yeah, but I'm on 40, 50 grand a week, I'm a good player. No, you're not. You've not done anything. Yeah. You've bandied about from club to club for the last five, six years. You've got talent, but you haven't done anything yet. And I don't want to point the finger at Izzy Brown, but I'm, I suppose I'm going to at this point. Because for me last year when I watched him play on his day, unbelievable. You'd hate to mark him. But then I saw him at times where he may as well have had a Cuban in his gob. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't have that wouldn't have worked with our group. If I, if you'd done that and it was Steve Howard or Kevin Nichols or myself or whatever, we would have pulled you up on that. We would have had a crack at you. It's not acceptable. But he is a good player, and I'm not saying that he's not, because the guy's electric when he plays when he chooses yeah. to. But you know what? When you go away to Hartlepool or you go away somewhere, roll your sleeves up, crack on, and get a job done. I think I think we've said exactly the same on the podcast uh, a couple of times about Izzy. I mean, he, on his day, he's fantastic. On his day, he's fantastic. But some, there's some days he goes goes missing, and uh, I don't remember many of the team in in your era going missing at all. Not at all. We're very strong. We we have the. Do you know what? We had the odd blip. I reckon if you look back through the records, we'd have it every nine weeks. We might have the one game where you'd look at it and go, how'd they lose to such and such 4-2 away from home? Yeah. But I think that was because we had a smallish squad as well where everyone was backing up week on, week out. And then you had the occasional blip and then you'd go and do it again. Um, when we went up the leagues, obviously we had a couple of blips early on in the seasons and then and then went through it. But everyone was accountable. So there's no way that you'd tolerate people not um, pulling their weight. And I mean, I've gone on about John Louis Valois before, enigma character footballer but do you know what he worked hard as well you know and he bought into what we were doing and, um, there's a name I, I just think you know this, this, I'm on the other side of the world so 
again, this is only my opinion. I saw three or four games and I do watch the games, but for someone with Izzy Brown's ability, he should be dominating and dictating games in the championship because I think he's scary. He's got shitloads of ability. Whether he chooses to use it or not, my point was more the fact that they get paid that well that early that they lose yeah. a bit of hunger and they don't keep doing what they're good at. Yeah, well, I hope when he's playing for Sheffield Wednesday, he's rubbish when he's playing us. Let's <laughs> <laughs> hope so. Oh, well, he, he can play well. He's done a job for us this year, so he can play well for them, just not against us. That's right. True. Um, when we sort of then go back to that 2001-2002 that season, which ended in automatic promotion, um, it, it ended up being a, a good year and you scored a few a few goals as well. Yeah, I used to try and chime in with a few. I mean, I was um, quite aggressive at attacking the ball and I, I love getting into the box. I mean, I started my career as a, you know, as a nine and then just I got into the Australian under-17 team and the, the coach just went, yeah, you're not a midfielder on attack, you're a defender. So I was always okay at scoring goals, um, but it was always good to chime in. You know, we prided ourselves that year on clean sheets. Um I think we went, I think it was 16 or 17 games towards the end of the season where we only conceded something stupid like three or four goals. And um, we used to look at each other and go, right, again, we're going to do it again today. But we could, if we knew if we do, did that, that Steve Howell was going to score for us yeah. or Nico would slot one or, you know, we just had that belief that if we could do our job and we could make sure that Embers or whoever was in nets didn't have to make a save, we weren't going to, we were going to score goals. You know, Matty Taylor would always pop up with goals. Yeah. So we, we knew that if we kept it tight at one end, that those boys would look after us. And, and you know, it, it was one of them. We did pride ourselves on it. And we're actually spewing. I think we conceded two or three at um, Donny at the last game of the year. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, it was one of them where, we, to be fair, we'd been on a bit of a jolly up the week before. <laughs> but we went out. We wanted to win. I want to hear we about this jolly up. I, I, I shit you not, the, the, the dressing room that day was pretty intense because everyone was saying, don't let yourself down. You've set this sort of standard and you've set this record. Don't let yourself down. And um, I think we went 1-0 down, 2-0 down. Nico scored a screamer, didn't he? Smash one from yeah. about 30, 40 yards. And um, we were spewing at the end of the day that, you know, we didn't get the result we wanted and conceded goals. But, you know, I think we went on a 16, 17-game unbeaten run, only conceded three or four so it was, um, it was just a characteristic, I think, of the group we had that we, you know, you do your job, we'll do ours and we'll look after each other. And the fans believe in you when, when you're playing well, the fans really get behind, don't they? Really get behind you. I mean, it must be great listening to that crowd at Kenilworth Road or wherever you are. When you go away and you walk out and there's a few thousand fans there watching, that must be a good feeling. Mate, it's a, it's it's a mate, it's the best feeling in the world. Don't don't get me wrong though, right? I've been in shopping centres, or I've been at the Arndale, or I've gone to Tesco's yeah. or something. I was shitting on the Saturday. They'll let you know as well, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> which you can't always get the cuddles and the kisses. No, Sometimes no. you've got to take the um the knocks as well. But that was one of the, people don't understand when I sort of explain to people from here or um, Luton. If once the new stadium goes up, right? And I don't care if we're in the championship or Div 1. Let's say it holds 22,000. We will fill that every single week. Yeah, and I don't care what people yeah. say. We go to Wembley and there's only a certain amount of tickets. Every single ticket was sold in two days. And yeah. people don't realise that that is their club. That's their area and they're proud of it. So it's they don't understand that Luton's got the potential to be a monster club. You know, we're looking at the Bournemouths and the Brightons and the Huddersfields. I think Luton, I, I don't even think they come into the same um, category as the Luton Town. It's kind of like the and potentials there, isn't it? Like, what's that, mate? It's kind of like the potential for the club to grow is there. Absolutely. And the fan base is there. And the people from the area love that club. Okay, they might look for Arsenal's result, but Luton's their team. Yeah, you know I, that's that's the biggest thing, and they're they're so staunch. It's scary, and I still I've played at some big stadiums, whether it was for the Aussie team or whatever. When we scored at Kenilworth Road in a big game, it's as loud as anywhere you'll go, and it, it does give you that twelfth man, and and they it has the adverse effect as well. When you're getting thumped or you're not having a good day at the office, it has the adverse effect because they are vocal, but they win you more games than they lose you because they're so vocal. Then I'm going to take some credit for that because <laughs> I go all the time. 
Uh, I wanted to talk about the next couple of years after 2001, um, 2002 season, when everything just seemed to go mental and crazy. So Kinnear was sacked, um, half had left as well. And it was all followed by this like manager idol contest to decide who was going to be in charge again, which I think now when you look back at it, just seems bizarre well, and surely like the only time in football this has ever happened. I don't think it was real. I think um, your man who came in uh, was just spinning it. I, he already knew who was coming in, right? You must have known that. Was you aware, no, was you aware they had been sacked? We, we, we came into the players' car park and um, he was... He was walking through the door. I think I got in quite early. I was in Warden Hills at the time, so I got in early to miss all the traffic coming in. And then you've got this big, monstrous, sweaty dog walking through the door, and you're sitting there just going, what is going on here? Yeah. And then I saw Terry Newby, who was a club secretary at the time, and I'm like, what's going on here? Because I'd been in Australia for four weeks, so I went home to see mum and dad and, and see the family and whatnot. And that was the first thing that I walked into, and it was just like, what, what's going on here? So it was it was surreal, you know. It was um, it was tough times. No one knew where they stood. The worst thing is we're a family club. You walk in the door, so you've got everyone the whole way through till you get to the dressing room and upstairs. We we're on this all on the same page, you know. Dickie, the the groundsman, everyone was on the same page, and we've got this clown sitting there going, "Well, you're not getting paid this month, and this isn't happening." But that wasn't just the players; that was everyone. Yeah. Yep. So I think that's what galvanised the group because. We all were on. We were all together, and it wasn't just the players not getting paid or the staff not getting paid. Everyone was on the same hymn sheet, and um, I think that actually was a good thing because it actually brought us together. But the whole farce of seeing Britain's got talent or Luton's got talent, and I'm on the other side of the world trying to see what was going up and checking on with the boys. It was farcical, but. You know, in that time, that was just Luton, wasn't it? That was just where we were at at the time, but. I can't even remember his name now. And he was um, what was his name? Gurney. John Gurney. That was yeah. it. And it was just it was absolute laughing stock racing race track round the yeah. round Stockwood and all the other crap. And you're sitting there just going, "Yeah, righto, mate." I mean, come on. <laughs> It must be quite, I think that must be quite, I know you said it, it, it kind of brought you and, and the team together and, and I guess the whole the whole club, as you said, like everyone not being paid. But if you're like turning up to training and you just, you, you're not knowing who the next manager is going to be and it's being decided by this, you know, phone in X Factor Britain's Got Talent contest, in your head are you just thinking like, this is so unprofessional? A little bit, but if we'd been a weak dressing room or we'd been weak characters, we would have crumbled, right? Because yeah. we're not getting paid, we were just going right. You've, you've reneged on my contract. We're out. But we we had a good group. We we were strong, and we said, you know what? Let's do it together. Let's work through this together and see where it takes us. Um, I'll give Mick credit. He kept in touch with a few of us and was just going, boys, don't crumble. Make sure it's a good club. Do the right thing. And again, that Harford factor comes in there where he made sure that we knew that we'd get look after. I think he maybe knew a bit more behind closed doors what was going on. Um, but yeah, it was fast school. It was one of them where you, you turn it up and you work hard, but you don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, I think that the strength of the dressing room, the strength of the character of the people behind the back rooms as well, they weren't getting paid. We were getting paid a lot more than them. And they were still turning up every day and still doing their jobs. Wow. And I think that speaks volumes. That's why I love the club so much because we, we all stuck together when we could have very easily just went, yeah, I don't know what's a bit hard. But we all dug in and, and rolled our sleeves up and, and that goes the whole way through the club, whether it was a ticket office, the you know, the club shop, everyone was in the same boat and we all decided that we we're gonna try and do it together and it, it eventually worked in our benefit because we were we were strong and we stuck together. True. I don't think I know a single I could think of one who might have done it, but I don't know a single fan that would have voted in the manager idol. That's why it's, it was a total farce. Um, I just think Gurney knew he was going to appoint. I think the two he originally were going to bring in didn't come, uh, or they were frightened off because of the fans' protest outside. Well, Cottrell, didn't Cottrell get a job at Stoke, or he went somewhere else after doing well? Yeah, I think he was he was offered, wasn't he? But there was a was there not was Lee Power at one point? I can't well, remember. He was going to bring Joe Kinnear back. Lee Power was yeah. in there. I think Steve Cottrell was in there. Norley and and Joe Kinnear yeah. was obviously there, but that was never going to happen. No. But yeah. I think it was a blessing in disguise for the club that newly came in because yeah. ex-Luton, good mates with Mick Steeny, and the best thing was he understood Luton. 
he understood the people of Luton as well and what football they wanted to see. So it was actually a blessing in disguise, whether it was through design or default. Yeah. Journey in his, his wisdom or his his specialness <laughs> got the right, right outcome in the, in the end anyway. So True. And he did well in that 2004-5 season. Maybe it was that togetherness you said that you built on uh, to go and win the League One title. This was my first ever season watching Luton. I think I was like nine years old during this season. And... What a season to you start supporting Luton. <laughs> Thanks, mate. I appreciate that. Nine. <laughs> but for my first season, it was an incredible year. And I, I, I want to talk about this year. So you scored some big goals this season as well. I've got a, just a few noted down. Tranmere away in a one-all draw. Uh, Bristol City away in a 2-1 win. Hartlepool away, like you said earlier. If you're going to Hartlepool away, roll up your sleeves. Hey, have you seen? Have yards. you seen that? Can you remember that goal? I remember that goal. I remember because I was. You, I, I didn't can go you remember far. it? I remember it. You're in your orange and your yeah, black shorts yeah. outside the box, bottom yeah, corner. Nah, but that one for me, that one for me stood out because I mean the Tramia one was important because of Tramia up the top with us. Um, and my old man used to play for Tramia as well, so I had family there. My old man's a scouser, and my mum's from Wigan, so I had a lot of family there. So that was an important one, but. The Hartlepool one just stepping out and then kept going and going and going and going and then all of a sudden it just opened up. But um, Mike Newell hated Hartlepool. They treated him badly. So there was a lot on that game because yeah. I think they were second or third at the time as well. And um, we got there on a Saturday and at 5-3 to three or 10-3 to three on the Saturday, they said, no, we're not playing the game. So back on the motorway, all the way back, and then we had to roll up there on a 7.30. It was, I think, January or December time. Freezing cold. They thought, yeah, we'll roll these soft soft lads and all the rest of it. And then um, we just went out. I think I scored the first. I think Kev Foley and then Enoch scored as well. And it was um, – I think that gave us, again, Christmas time, get points, roll the points out and stick them on the board. But that was, um, that was a big one for me because I think it gave us a bit of momentum to go and win the league. When you look back at that season, is there was there like a secret behind the success? Because obviously you could sit there and say there was togetherness. Was there anything, just anything like you, you can remember that was like, you know, that was a bit of a routine and it just worked? No, do you know what? There was no, there was no sort of set routine. I mean, Mike Neal, was, his best trait was the way that he managed the boys again. And because he, he was quite a young manager, he understood the players quite well and their thought processes and, People don't give Mike Newell the credit for how intelligent the guy was. Um, Hyper-intelligent, he's doing university studies, he's doing this, that and the other. But the way that he looked after the players um, was superb. And if you'd done a job for for Newell, he'd look after you. Um, So there was no no secret to it. I think we're fortunate that Joe and Mick had had built a a strong squad. I think Mike Newell was very good and astute in the signings that he made. Um, in you know Paul Underwood coming in and, and people like that, but you know we already had the nucleus of a good team, and I think Mike Newell was very astute in what he added to and, and brought into that group. But there was nothing in particular. You know, Robbo came in. Steve Robinson is a big one that obviously came in and scored a lot of goals. So again, I think it was just the astuteness of the management that, that got the good people in and, and got people around them that they knew they could trust. And another game you scored in was the all-important. 2-1 win away at Wrexham to win the title. Oh, goodness. You and Curtis Davis. Um, what a day that was. I nearly um, I nearly fell down the stairs that day. Um, <laughs> my, my, one of my, you one must of, have been the one holding the camera. <laughs> oh, man, I tell you. There, there was one of my one of my best friends uh, came with me. I, I, I actually said to somebody that uh, if we had a, a small chance of getting promoted that day, we would go. Um, and because of the midweek games, we went. Um and then you hear from, I think, Hull were at Walsall, weren't they, that day? And you hear they're losing. You're thinking, come on, then, we can do this. And and, and then, did we go one down? Can't remember. Yeah, we did, yeah. yeah. After about and, 20 minutes, And I'm thinking, it was. what are you lot doing? Get get your finger out. I've come all this way to bloody <laughs> Wales to see us win the championship <laughs> and you're not winning. But when you scored, I remember my guy, my mate had just had a brand new Luton Town tattoo on his arm, literally like the day before. Well, that got slapped. <laughs> he was he wasn't best pleased. He wasn't best pleased. I have to great. say, I, I remember I, I can vividly remember scoring the goal because I spoke to Nico on the way up, and because we had a couple of big presences in there, everyone used to follow Steve Howard or Enoch or whatever. So I used to just because I was slightly I was well a few inches smaller than them. I just say Nico, I'll just go around the back. If you overhit it, I'll make sure that I make it a you know a decent ball. 
So as I ran past Nick, I said, just hit me at the back post. I said, I've got this knob. I've got him all day long. He, he can't compete with me. And then all of a sudden, I mean, Nico's delivery was fantastic. He, yeah. he knocked some some great delivery in. And it was one of them. I, I remember scoring the goal, and it's only because I've seen the, the highlights and I've seen the video a few times. I can't remember afterwards. I remember looking up at the stands because I think my uncle was up there on the day for he drove up from or down from Liverpool. But it was the biggest... Um, adrenaline rush I think I, I one of the biggest adrenaline rushes anyway I ever had in football and I, how many did we have there that day was there 4,000 it would have been close maybe more there was a few I couldn't tell you how many exactly I, I do remember having to queue for a long time because it wasn't it wasn't all yeah. ticket I remember getting in the stand and we were behind the goal and then they opened up the stand on the side of the goal uh, it was a good following yeah. that day a really good following oh it was a massive following and i just remember that away end i could just remember when i stood there and just saw the away end and it was just like wow how good is this but it was good as well i mean if you look back at those game highlights i think that was curtis's first ever professional goal yeah yeah and and you know and he was like bambi on ice wasn't he when he was running <laughs> off his arms and legs were falling off it's like mate, enjoy ice, it but yeah. It was some celebration, but um, no, that was a great day. I, I, even after the game, it was a sense of relief. Um, but that, that day itself and that game, I mean, that atmosphere at the game was um, was something else. How did you guys celebrate the title win then? Was it a night out in Wales? Or I was it back remember. In, I think we coach? might have gone past Tesco's for a carry out on the way back. But <laughs> the, the good thing is I can't remember, I think. So... But that was, um, that was a, a fantastic group. I mean, we, we were close again. Um, I keep going back to that, but that was one of the biggest driving forces. But um, you know, that as a game as well, the way it panned out, I think we were um, we were pretty comfortable. But there were some big games. I mean, Plymouth at home, that was one of the loudest things I've ever heard. When um, I think it was Burko scored, didn't he to make it two one? Yep, I think when you're we right. beat Plymouth that year. That was um, that was massive. So. Plenty of key moments, but yeah, that was um, a special moment for me. I do, I do really enjoy it. And then the ironic thing as well, it was St George's Day, which uh, yep. all yep. the Poms would have loved as well. Yeah, I loved that. Absolutely loved that. <laughs> I, I just, it was such a brilliant day out. Honestly, we we left super early. We had a we had a, a van full of six to eight people. Um, case of beer, as you do. I was driving, so I didn't drink. Just to let you know, um, but. Yeah, I, do, do you know? As a, <laughs> well, maybe had one or two, but not not too many. But uh, the things with when you when you're a Luton fan, these do stick in your mind. These days out and and the celebrations and the noise and you go in and there's loads of people there. We love it. And and when you watch your team, because I've been watching the team since I've been five years old, so you know it's quite a while. Um, it's just that moment. We probably. Love it's it. the moment you live for yeah, as a fan. Yeah, as a fan, honest, yeah. I, I, well, I'd love to be on the pitch, but I'm rubbish, so that <laughs> wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked. So. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what? We felt that as well. I think we were aware of that, and we knew because do you know what? There wasn't that distancing at that time, was there? Because we used to go to the locals. We used to go and have a beer. We used to yeah. go to TGI Fridays and and not have a problem socialising. I think with social media and phones and. I think it's a completely different era now where players don't mix with, with punters as much as they yeah, used to. That's true. But because we were good, we were punters. We were, you know, normal in terms of we weren't as um, open to criticism in terms of the social media and all the other stuff that comes. We could come and have a beer with with, with everyone and, and have a drink in the, you know, we could go into wherever. Where yeah. I think now that's um, sort of, frowned upon and, and with the inset or onset of social media, Facebook or whatever. Yeah. So I think people took us more for, we were a part of what you guys were going through as well, because we were able to interact a lot more. It's like, I think that's been lost to an extent now. And it's, it's a shame because you don't realize how much it hurts and how much happiness you can bring to people when you're not a part of it. Yeah. Where I think we understood that as a group. I think we got it because when we won, you won and, and we realized that, and it did, you know, it, it was a big driving force, I think. It's like now you look at like the likes of Jack Grealish, if he, he, he goes out quite a bit, I guess, in Birmingham and, and, you know, he has like one beer and it's everyone's taking photos. It's all over social media. And it's like players now can't go out and, you know, have one or two beers because it feels like everyone is out there just to capture them, pa- pass it on and basically like spread a bad word, I guess, like you said. 
Well, they become pariahs, don't they? Because they're earning so much money now and the, and the average man's not earning anywhere near that. So they look to, you know, scapegoat someone and say, well, he shouldn't be doing that. He's earning X amount. They're still human beings at the end of the day and they've got to live. As long as they're doing a job on a Saturday, who cares? Yeah. Um, yes, you've got to respect the fact that you're not just re- represent yourself, you represent your teammates, the club and the town, but everyone's got to live and, and also have that freedom to to do what they need to do because otherwise you get the opposite end of the spectrum when they're 40 and we're seeing all these divorces and, you know, all the other stuff that's going on in the world at the moment, you've still got to live your life because you've only got one goal at it. So, yes, I agree that you, there's certain disciplines you've got to instill in yourself and do properly, um, but I also think that people have to give, um, not just footballers, I think people in general just need to give them a bit of leeway to be themselves and, and appreciate life. True. Maybe you guys had a bit of leeway in the championship because I've heard Warren Feeney talk about this on a podcast. I don't know if you've seen this and I just really want to know if it's true. So we basically you said, do realise, I'm just going to throw a precursor in here, Warren Fino's mad as shit. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of the maddest dudes I've ever come across. So I'll take this with a pinch of salt and see where it takes us. He really doesn't come across that kind of guy. If it, I think when you look at Warren Feeney, you think he's just like a really quiet guy. Is that not the case? Are you kidding me? He must have had a Valium before he spoke to you. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> okay, I've well, seen the guy stood in the dressing rooms with a Northern Irish flag, stuffed bollock naked, sitting there <laughs> singing songs. He's off his head, mate. Don't worry about it. That is what we want to hear. Yeah. So basically he said in pre-season, you guys went out to Bulgaria, said there was a nightclub in the hotel, which he said you were in most nights. Is that true? No, no, no. We, did, we went the last two nights. Okay. So newly sort of said... I'll give you some time, but you give me the first week. So, yeah, you're right so far. Keep going. Okay. And then he said you'd train like three times a week. So it's like you'd have Monday off, you'd have Wednesday off. And he said on a Friday, you'd have KFC, a bargain bucket, every week. That was Fino. I did or he did? Just the whole squad, he said. Nah, he's full of shit. That's why he always had his skin <laughs> folds were struggling. <laughs> nah, we did. Listen, Bulgaria, the first bit was true. Yeah. So I think we went there for eight, nine days pre-season. Um, we worked our socks off, mate. That was um, that was some good going. And, and we played, I think we played Lev, Lev, oh, We played one of the Sofia teams anyway. And then the Saturday night we went out. I thought you were going to say, because there was, do you know the old disco balls? Yeah. So there was one of those balls in the disco bit. There was only about 20 people in there and I've just gone, I can head that. And Mike Newell just went, no chance. So I've gone and smashed my, I've gone and nutted this thing. It's gone flying off the roof. And then Norley was just doing Cruyff turns through the um, the nightclub with this, this disco ball at his feet. I had a little razor cut on my head from button. Like I didn't realise it was all glass, glass bloody glass mirrors. Um, things they put on it. So that was true, but... We, we did have the odd jolly up. I mean, I remember we went to um, – where did we go? We went to Marbella or Porto Benoist once, and that was when we were sitting mid-table in the championship, international break. We trained twice, and then Newley said, I'll see you on Friday, and gave us three days off, oh, which wow. at the time I think we came back and won the next three, so it wasn't an issue. But I think it was more to alleviate that stress and the pressure that you'd put yourselves under um, over that period. But – the KFC, I reckon Nico might have gone for a couple of drum drumsticks <laughs> in his time. But, um, you know, we weren't like the boys are now. You know, they're highly elite. They're, they've got to be because the, the foreign influx, there wasn't as many foreigners. So I remember when I got to West Ham, there was maybe one or two. Then all of a sudden the next year it was four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 94 World Cup was when all the remote, was it 94? Yeah, it was. And then all of a sudden, all these foreigners came in, Raditroyo, Dimitrescu, um, Bilic, um, Stimats, all started coming through. So then all these players that were playing um, Premier League before or League One all then came down to the championship and then it had a knock-on effect, which I think has been a a benefit to an extent, not for the national team, but for the league in general. Um, But there's less English players playing now. I mean, yes, I'm a foreigner, but... English born or English bred, I suppose, through my, my parents. But you saw this foreign influx more and more um, coming through. So I think there's boys that have played championship their whole career that would have played Div 1 or, or Premier League, aside from that foreign influx. But as, as far as the KFC, Fino's 
he's a good lad, but I think he got the buckets wrong. <laughs> if, if KFC is all you've got, it's not too much of a problem, is it? It's not like you're necking a bottle of whiskey or something, is it? No, I think it was the KFC buckets that we might have filled with beer afterwards. It was a problem, but <laughs> you know, we listen. We gave it a nudge. We weren't we weren't angels by any extent, but we trained our asses off, and, and every time we stepped out, we made sure we done everything to win. Who were you closest with that se- that season? Have you got like one player who was like your best mate? Ah, uh, me, Nico, Sol, um, you know, Stevie Howard. There was a, we weren't really clicky. I mean, Sol was my roommate. Um, and I was, I got on really well with Sol. I mean, he was quiet. Um, he was a quiet lad, to be honest. But wow. once I got into my room and it was a Friday night, I didn't want anyone to speak to. She does enough for that for, for the both <laughs> of us during the week. So it was good just to be able to put my head down and we'd chuck, you know, whatever was on at the time and have a bag of Haribo's, bottle of water and, and go to sleep. So, you know, I got on really well with Sol. Um, you know, Kevin Nichols was a good friend of mine. We we spent a lot of time with the, the kids and family. We had kids a similar age. You know, Steve Howard, we, we were very close. Um, but you know, there was no sort of groups or cliques. You know, Aki Berkovich as well. You know, we all we all got on really well. God, you keep naming these team players. I was thinking, God, I remember everybody. It was such Bring a good, memories, it was, isn't it? Oh, it was such a good time. Yeah. It was such a good time. So after your, your great playing career, you're now working in Western Australia. Tell us a bit about what you're currently up to. Yeah, so I um, packed in. I, I obviously came back, played for Perth Glory for a couple of years and um, snapped my Achilles in a challenge. Uh, I was about 32, 33, I think, at the time, which I don't – it's one of them, you know, some people get injured early. I got injured after fulfilling what I probably set out to do um, as a young Aussie kid, so – Snapped that, did nothing for about 18 months. I played a bit of golf and tried to work on my handicap, but my only handicap was golf. And so I um, got into coaching the kids, which I've, I've, re- I've really enjoyed for about four or five years, um, trying to, you know, help kids out and, and do whatever. And then from there, I sort of started coaching, um, prof- well, I say sem- professionally, semi, semi-pro um, over here and then went into finance. So... Had about seven years now coaching Bayswater Soccer Club, which we've had a bit of success. Last couple of years have been a bit grim mm-hmm. in terms of not winning any silverware, but really enjoyed it. But, um, you know, life after football, you think you're going to be a footballer forever, right? And I, I enjoy um, the coaching aspect. I had a couple of offers to go to India and coach in the IPL and stuff like that. But uh, my oldest boy is 18, turning 19, uh, middle one's 16, and youngest one's 14. So... I think it's my job to raise them and, and raise some young men and then I can start gallivanting around and, and once they're in a position that I can leave them, um, I can then start pursuing my coaching career and, and what I want to do. But it's my responsibility, I think, to raise um, three good young people that I can leave and they can do their own thing and then pursue my coaching aspirations from there. Nice. When I've been, We've been to Australia and we've been to A-League Games um, what do you think the standard is compared to the UK? Yeah, see, this is contentious because when I try and tell people that the A-League boys will get belted up by League Two teams, they go, no, no, you're full of it. And I, I don't think people realise because they've not sat on the trenches and the terraces, the, the, the A-League's technically good. Yeah. Um, the problem the A-League's got is they play in the middle of summer. So when I got back, my first game back after being in the UK and that for 14 years, it was 36 degrees. Wow. And you're trying to play football in it. And it's not its not like, you know, when you go on holiday to Tenerife or whatever and it's 36 degrees, it's not that sort of heat. Yeah. Add an extra 10 or 15 to it. It's this really dry, um, horrible heat. So it, it affects the game and it slows the game down. Awesome. Um, so technically the, the Australian kids are gifted. The problem that you've got in Australia is that they come from such a comfortable lifestyle that they're not fighting for anything. Mm-hmm. So if they've got no fire in their guts and they don't want to be successful, they're not going to achieve it because they've got everything they want on their doorstep. Where, and that's no disrespect to the UK, but you go back to your council tenements and you go back to the working class there, they're fighting to get out. They've got something. You look at the Brazilians or the South Americans, yeah. they're fighting. It's their it's me or you, I'm going to fight you to the death until I get what I want. Where to Australia's detriment, they haven't got that hunger. Um, The other thing with Australian football, they've tried to model themselves on a philosophy or 
uh, curriculum that's based on Spanish and Dutch football. Yeah. You know, we're not. We're big. We're robust. We're made up of so many different ethnic minorities that we we haven't got an identity in terms of our football yet because people keep trying to reinvent it. So, you know, we used to qualify for Youth World Cups, quarterfinals, semifinals. You know, we're always there or thereabouts. We can't even qualify for a World Cup now in junior football. Wow. So similar to that sort of circumstances England had, but I'd go back to all the foreign influx and there was no kids coming through where it looks like the UK through their academies has gone back to basics. Now all of a sudden England are winning you know, Youth World Cups and mm. doing what they should be doing with the, the amount of money that's in the game and the amount of quality that's in English football. A-League is a product. Listen, it's not a bad product, but if you're not there, you don't understand all the all the stuff that goes on behind the doors because you, you're playing in 36 degrees. Imagine playing a Premier League game in 36, 37 degrees. Oh, well, they, they struggled. They had to bring in water breaks, didn't they, after yeah. lockdown? I, I was just going to... Just yeah. brief, I was going to briefly so, say, when we was in Sydney, we, we went to the Sydney Derby, Wanderers uh, Sydney FC, and I would have loved it to have been 30 degrees heat that day because it rained the I whole time. That. It rained the whole time. Yeah. And the only other thing I found really weird was uh, we were supporting Western Sydney, but everybody was mixing with everybody else. I, I just don't get that. I don't. As a Luton fan, they wouldn't well, do that with Watford, would we? Let's be fair. No. Oh, good God, no. <laughs> I still remember. I actually bumped into someone that was at that game at Vicarage Road when we played in the Carling Cup, and he was trying started telling me a couple of stories about it, and I was just going, yeah, I was at the far end of Vicarage Road, opposite end of the tunnel when everyone flew onto the pitch, and yeah. that was absolute carnage. But that was by design. So the FFA, there was a lot of ethnic issues between the Serbians, the Croatians, and all the rest of it through that war and whatnot. Yeah. So they took the ethnicity away from the clubs. Now, if you're from Luton, you support Luton. If you're from Watford, you support Watford. In Australia, it was if you came from a certain community and migrated there, that was your club and that was your community. So what they did is they said you can't be called, you know, Western uh, Macedonia or Western Croatia. They took that away from the clubs. And what it done is it, it lost that cultural value that the clubs had. Right. So since they've done that, then you've got fans – you know, commingling and all the rest of it. It, it did lo- lose a lot. But early 90s, when I sort of grew up um, watching football and being a part of it, mate, they it was segregated. There were still fences around the pitch. And it, it, whether that's right or wrong, um, you know, only time will tell. But I think that made a massive part in Australian football. And that's why we were getting Vadukas and Kules and, and all the rest of it. We haven't produced a player for a very long time. Um, and I, I, listen, that's not the sole blame. The curriculum is and also that. But I think it's just lost that community feel, that hatred that you need in football. I don't care who you are. You hate. You've got to have a hatred. You've got to have a burn, burn in your guts to, um, to enjoy your football. And, and that's been taken out of the game in Australia. It's too sanitised. One thing you could say about Australia and, and fans and who people support is there's probably quite a few Luton fans out there in Australia. Um, we actually reached out and we asked for some Luton fans to record us a message of a story about Chris Coyne. Um, so have oh a listen God, to this. <laughs> have a listen to this. Um, we had to cut this one short. It was like two and a half minutes long. But basically, your this was a chance for you to be um, having your Australian debut against Ghana, apparently, in a... In a friendly, so just yes. have a listen to this. And I'm going along, and I'm in the posh seats, and I've heard that Chris Coyne's going to be on the bench. So I'm thinking this could be his senior senior soccer restart. So this would be good. The game was terrible. The guy I was with, and I got pretty drunk. And as the game got progressively worse, I start shouting out things like, uh, "Bring Chris Coyne on! Bring Chris Coyne on! He'll lighten it up. He might even get us a goal from a corner." And I became more annoying to everybody who was seated around me and uh, had a few more drinks. And then at half time, somebody shouts out, Oi, mate, why don't you have a chat with your mate Chris Coyne? He's down there. So Sydney Football Stadium is quite a way between the pitch and the seats. And uh, I just merrily, because I had about 10 beers in me by then, ran down there and I thought, oh, well, I'll try and say hello to him, thinking he'd probably think he's this dickhead. And I'm shouting out, Chris, Chris, Chris. And he looks over, like, not coming over there. You're a bit weird. And then I said, look, I'm, I support Luton. I'm a Luton fan. I think Chris had moved to Colchester by then. And he came running over. He was very generous with his time. And uh, I think we had a little sort of man hug or something. And then as I came back up the stairs, 
uh, to take my seat. I looked at the guy and basically said, there you go, I've had a word with him. Um, he might be coming on later or something like along those lines. But I think I got a little bit of kudos in the stand, albeit my drunk mate was laughing his head off. Um, pretty boring story, I suppose, really, unless you're me. But that's the gist of um, that. And, um, yeah, I suppose I could be considered a bit of a stalker, a bit of a widow, but but I'm not really. <laughs> a bit of a weirdo. He, he's speaking a bit better than he was that night anyway. <laughs> any remembrance of that happening in, your, in, in the I garden? do, yeah. We're in the bottom corner at the Sydney Football Stadium. I do remember it, yeah. And um, it was just one of those funny ones because they came to watch me on the last game of the year and I was injured. And then I got called into that camp. But, I, yeah, I do remember it. It was uh, it was quite funny. And uh, he was he, he had a few under his belt. But, uh, <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was good fun. But I've always been that way, you know. Like, at the end of the day, you're a footballer. You play it, – it's what you dreamed of doing. But what makes you different? Nothing makes you different. At the end of the day, you're still people and you, you treat people exactly the same. And if I hadn't have done the right thing or shown people respect, my old man would have slapped me over the head anyway. So – you know, that that for me is important that you, you treat everyone right. I, I hate all this pompous shit now where people think they're above themselves and all the rest of it. It's important that you remember where you come from because um, I didn't come from much, but I was fortunate to play football. It doesn't make me any different from anyone else. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. It's, it's, it's been great. It's been great chatting to you for the last 45, 50 minutes. Um, yeah, it's, it's just no, been it's good. Been, it's been good fun. I've had, a, I've had a good chat. It's worth getting up for, wasn't it? Very much worth getting up for. for. What do you make I of Luton I apologise for the time, mate. I, I do apologise. It was, um, um, you even had time to do your barnet as well. <laughs> I had time to do mine. I'm not sure about no, it. But, you no, know. No, 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 you can't polish a turd, mate. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, before we let you go, um, Luton, this season, what do you reckon? Enough to avoid the drop? Enough to push on for playoffs? What, what, what's your quick thought? Absolutely. I think, do you know what? They were playing some good stuff last year and I, I thought they were weak at the back um, and it looks like over the last week they've gone and strengthened and, and added to what they already had. I, I, I thought a couple of them just weren't up to it personally uh, at the back and I, I, that's not just for me watching TV, that's me watching it live as well. So it uh, looks like he's, he's recognised that and gone and added. Was it the right thing bringing him back? Yeah, proof's in the pudding, right? Um, was it the right thing for him to leave? No one would begrudge him doing it. Um, and that's no disrespect to Graham Jones either. But when players trust a, a manager, as soon as he came in, they all puffed their chest out and, and cracked on. Yeah. Um, so I think he gets Luton and I think he gets the people in and around the club. Um, so I'm, I'm excited this year. I think if we can maybe add one or two more, um, I don't think we're too far off. I think maybe a few goals. I think that's the most important thing because there's only so much, you know, Collins and that can do. I think there may be one short up top, but um, those guys don't grow on trees. So it'll be interesting to see. But excited. I'm really excited by this year. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it starting. And the only, the only issue we have is we can't go yet. So, you know, that's the only issue we have. But we'll, we'll all be watching. We all want the same thing. We, want, we want Luton to do well. And... Uh, Getting back to the level when, when you were playing, when we were winning. And it's all kicking off um, in a couple of days' time. Home to Norwich yeah. in the Carabao Cup. It's going to be a good one. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. If you are listening to this right now, you can go watch us on YouTube, Owen the Town. Get us on social media at Owen the Town. We shall see you next week. Chris, thank you once again. Yeah, awesome, boys. Take care. Thank you so much for your time.